After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon and his, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and found, fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Dejev, and in the lowlands. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahimon and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, please give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenites, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. And the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it there three sons of Anak. And the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. 
Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, for the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahalal, for the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or the inhabitants of Alab, or, or of Akzib, or of Helba, or of Afik, or of Rehob. For the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, for they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris and in Aijalon and in Shaalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim and Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bakim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bakim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we confess that we often get lost in the maze of all these names that we can't pronounce. And things that don't seem intelligible to us. So we ask, O oh God, tonight that you would come and draw out from this text of Scripture for us the things that could be clear to us. That you would make clear to us, O oh God, what you're calling us to do what you're calling us to run from, and how you, O oh God, provide for us in Christ Jesus. Come by your Holy Spirit and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What happened to the Israelites? I'll start with a story where we also see one of the great reversals in, in uh, sports history. This is for you, Justin Burke. On Sunday, October 17, 2004, the impossible happened. 
It was in Boston, Massachusetts, and almost 35,000 people were on hand to see the impossible. You see, for 86 years, there had been a curse on the Boston Red Sox. They had traded arguably the greatest baseball player of all time, Babe Ruth, to the New York Yankees. And they were bitter enemies. And for those 86 years, again and again and again and again, the, the Yankees had pummeled the Red Sox and thwarted every dream of a championship. The Red Sox never had one in those 86 years. And in 2004, again, the Red Sox and the Yankees meet in the American League Championship Series to see who gets to go to the World Series. And in usual fashion, the Yankees race out to a three games to none lead. And in the third game, they beat them by not the score of 19 to 8. Everybody says, it's over. The curse of the Bambino lives on. In the fourth game, the Yankees are winning 4-3 to three in the bottom of the ninth inning. And they bring in arguably one of the best closing pitchers of all time, Mariano Rivera. Everybody thinks it's done. And the unthinkable happens. The first guy walks. They put in a pinch runner. He steals second base. And then a base hit. And he scores. It's tied. They go into extra innings. And in the 12th inning, Big Poppy comes up to the plate and hits a home run to win the game. Still, everybody writes off the Red Sox. Okay, they won one game. But they're still in the hole. There's no way they can pull this out. And they go on to win not just the next three games, but eight games in a row beating the St. Louis Cardinals for the World Series championship. One of the great reversals of all time. Exactly the opposite happens to the people of Israel. Exactly the opposite. They were riding high. You read through the book of Joshua, and it is all good, except for a tiny little blip here and there, Joshua leads the people into the promised land and they conquer all the major cities of the promised land. One after another, after another, after another as they walk in obedience to God under the leadership of Joshua. But when Joshua dies, you see one of the great reversals in time. As they go from the mountaintop of conquering the promised land living in obedience to God, to the end of the book of Judges, living in a time not of fighting their enemies, but of fighting one another. And what we're going to see as we work through this, we're going to see what is it about Israel that causes them to have this great reversal? And what do they need? Okay, so I want you to see three things tonight. I want you to see what is it that caused Israel spiritual success? What was it that was present in their lives, in the body of, of God, during that time that caused them to have spiritual success? And then, alternatively, what caused them to have spiritual decline 
And then how the Lord comes to rebuke them. So first, spiritual success. Four things happen in this first part of chapter 1, chapter 1, 1 through verse 22, that show us things that, can, uh, that Israel practiced to have, give them spiritual success, as it were. So I want to look at those with you. The first is that they sought divine counsel. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Up to this point, in the history of Israel after Egypt, they have had great and strong leaders to lead them. You remember in the book of Exodus, God raises up Moses, calling him in the desert to go and be a leader for God's people. And he is a great and mighty instrument in the hand of God to deliver them out of Egypt and to lead them to Mount Sinai and in the wilderness. And God uses Moses mightily. And at the end of Moses' life, God then raises up another leader in the man Joshua. And it's even Moses who lays his hands on and anoints Joshua as the next leader of God's people. And in the life of Joshua, you see, again, Israel have great success as they have a great and strong leader. And then Joshua dies. And there's no leader. What will happen? What will Israel do? God does not give them a leader. And so all the people gather together and they come to the Lord. And they inquire of the Lord. Who is it that is to lead us in conquering the rest of the land? Now, they've conquered the major cities, but there's still peoples that live in the land that need to be driven out of the land. And so as they try to figure out, okay, God, who's to lead us? Who's to go up first? They go to inquire of God. They seek his counsel. And this reminds us that one of the key ingredients for us, if we are going to grow spiritually, is that we need to be inquiring of the Lord. We need spiritual guidance. You see, the Israels, they didn't, when they, were, when they wanted to figure out what to do next, they didn't like gather amongst themselves and ask, gather up their own wisdom. They didn't go to the world for its wisdom. They didn't go, hey guys, let's go check out the... Uh, the battle books from the library and come up with a battle plan. No, they go to God. And they inquire of Him, what are we to do? And the first ingredient that He gives us of spiritual success is that God has to be in the driver's seat. He's got to be the one navigating, guiding us, showing us where to go. It's interesting, when we, as a session, interview people for membership, We'll often ask them a question like, you know, if somebody comes to you and they ask you if something is sin, how would you figure it out? Maybe they come to you and they say, hey, you don't need to be doing that. That's sin. And you're not sure. How would you figure it out? And the answer is you go to Scripture. You don't go to the world. You go to Scripture. You don't go to your own wisdom, trusting your own heart that it will lead you this way or that way. 
You go to God's Word. You, in, you go and you inquire of the Lord. And there's a big decision to be made. How do you do it? You go to God's Word. You see if there are principles in there that will help you make that decision. When we as a, a church try to ask, okay, when we gather together as a church to worship, we ask, okay, what are the things that we're going to do in worship? We don't just gather together and say, well, hey, what do you like? Well, what do you like? Well, what do I like? We go to God's Word. We commit ourselves to, God, to the things that God says, these are the things that are to fill your worship. Singing, my word, prayer, the sacraments. He tells us. We seek his guidance, not our wisdom. And you ask yourself, what does it mean to be a good husband? What does it mean to be a good wife? Whether you're trying to ask it for yourself or you're looking for someone. How do you know? You go to God's Word. When you ask yourself, how can I be a godly businessman or a godly student? You go to God's Word. You inquire of the Lord. You find your instruction there. You inquire of God. The first ingredient of spiritual success is that we inquire of God. A real sign of spiritual maturity is a desire to know and apply God's Word. Secondly, a reason for their success was that they had divine assurance. Not only did they have God's word, they had assurance from God of their success. Look at verse 2 again. The Lord said to them, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. When they ask God, God gives them the answer and he also gives them assurance of success. He doesn't just say, okay, I want Judah to go. And then Judah goes and they wonder, okay, what's going to happen? I wonder if this is going to work out. I wonder if Judah's going to be good enough. No, God also gives them a promise. Judah's going to go up and I will deliver his enemies into his hand. We have assurances from God's word. God assures them of victory. And I want you to think about this. Think about how God does this all over Scripture. Where He gives assurances, promises to us. Promises of forgiveness of sins. Promises that He's at work in us. Promises that He's our God and He will always be with us. All over Scripture, He gives us promises. He gives it in different ways. He gives it, for some of us, we like stories. And He does it in stories so that you know that God, if you belong to Him, He's working all things together for your good. Because when you read in the book of Genesis about Joseph, you see how God works everything together for His good, even the evil intentions of other people. If, you're a, if poetry is the thing that you love, all over the Psalms, God is reminding us of His promises. He will always be with us. The Lord is my shepherd. I will never want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of evil, He will be with me. If you'd love to spend time in the Gospels, you see them all over the Gospels, where Jesus says to those of us who are weary and struggling and heavy, 
heavy laden with burdens on us. He says, come unto me and I will give you rest. We love the Apostle Paul and the epistles. He gives us promise after promise after promise. And if you belong to Christ, there's no condemnation for you. But instead, there's peace. Because God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for you. God assures us that he is with us, that his promises are for us all over Scripture. And one sign of spiritual maturity and growth is that you're living not based on your circumstances, what you see around you, the challenges you see around you, not based on your feelings about them, but based on what God has said. Based on what God has promised you. So that what we find in Scripture is that we see people living that way and we find them having the greatest peace and joy even in the middle of great struggle. Now that's not hard. That is, that's hard fought over many trials. But you can have it if you live your life based on not what you see, not what you feel, but on what God has promised. Thirdly, third sign of spiritual success was that the people of God had divine presence. God was in their midst. Look at verse 19 and verse 22. It said in verse 19, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. Or verse 22, The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. What do you think the greatest blessing of God's people is? What's the greatest blessing if you belong to God, if you follow God? It's His presence. The greatest blessing that you and I have is that God promises to be with us, that He dwells in our midst. In the book of Exodus, Right after Israel has sinned greatly with the golden calf, Moses goes back up on the mountain and he's talking with God in Exodus chapter 33. And God tells Moses, Moses, this is a stiff-necked people. They are a sinful people. I cannot be in their midst or I will destroy them. And Moses goes to God and Moses says, but God, there's no reason for us to do anything unless you're with us. God says, well, I'm going to send my angel in front of you and he will drive the people out in front of you. And Moses says, no. What sets us apart from all the nations around us is your presence with us. What makes us great as your people is that you dwell in our midst. Oh God, we don't want to go anywhere unless you are in our midst. And it's right after that that, that um, God gives to Moses the instructions for the tabernacle. So what's the tabernacle? It's that place that was to be right in the middle of all of God's people where His presence came and dwelt in their midst. And they knew that He was with them. That they were God's people because His presence was with them. Think about how you and I have it 
much greater. You and I have it much better than them. You might think, well, gosh, it would be so awesome to go and see the tabernacle, to see those tapestries and see the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, to see the smoke of the sacrifice going up. You might be tempted to think, wow, I wish it was like them and I got to see that. But you and I have it much better. Because God is not hidden behind a curtain for us. But instead, we have God's presence with us in a far greater degree in the person of Jesus and in the person of the Holy Spirit. Remember the Gospel of John, where John starts off his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And the word that John uses there is a very particular word that means he tabernacled, he tented among us. And what John is trying to say is that Jesus is the presence of God in the midst of his people. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one who says at the end of his life, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you until the end of the age. He is with us. Much more than that, He even pours out His Holy Spirit upon us so that you now don't have to stand outside the tent looking in the ta- over to the tabernacle, but you are the tabernacle. Paul says that you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Try to wrap your mind around that one. The presence of God is not just over there, somewhere hidden from us. It is in us. And what we have to do is be constantly remembering and reminding ourselves. A key to spiritual success is seeing this and living in light of it. That we don't think to ourselves, God is going to forsake me and leave me. But we say, God is committed to me. He's given His Son for me. He's dwelling in me. I am His temple, His tabernacle. His presence is with me. And then lastly, they work together. They work together. Look at verse 2. Well, actually, look at verse 1 and 2. It says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. It wasn't just that they were back in their lands doing it by themselves. It was that they got together collectively as the people of Israel, as a nation, and they inquired of the Lord together. And they said, who shall go up first for us? This was a national effort against the Canaanites. And the Lord says, Judah shall go up. And then look at verse 3. Notice verse 3. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. God says Judah's to go up first. But Judah says, let's do it together. I'll lead the way, but Simeon, come with me. You come with me and help me, and then I will come with you and help you. And they're practicing the unity of the body of Christ. This is very logical. It's interesting. You think about Judah and Simeon. They are full brothers. 
They're both sons of Leah and Jacob. Not just that, but Judah's territory surrounds the territory of Simeon. And Simeon is one of the smallest tribes. And Judah is saying, Simeon, come with me. You help me, though you're the smallest, and then I will help you. And they're practicing the unity of the body of Christ. And the thing that we need to see is you cannot live the Christian life by yourself. You know, part of the history of the nation of America is the Lone Ranger. You know, the man who can do it on his own, whether it be the Lone Ranger or it be John Wayne in a Western movie or whoever, Clint Eastwood, taking everything into his own hands and doing it by himself. Or today with Iron Man. Instead, God says, don't do it by yourself. You need the people of God. General Assembly, our national meeting for our denominations coming up in June. And every year we end the assembly by singing a psalm. Psalm 133. Which is praising God and glorying in the unity of the body of Christ. Listen to it. Behold how good and pleasant it is, my brothers, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. When they work together, when they lean on each other, when they show that they need each other. He says, it's like the precious oil on the beard, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, you need each other. And everybody needs everybody. There's nobody, there's no one that's a part of the body of Christ that is not essential, that's not needed. Sometimes you might be around here and you might think, oh, they don't really need me. We need you. We need you to pray. I need you to pray. For me, in my own personal struggle, spiritually. I need to pray for you. We need each other. Don't forget it. Don't ever think you're not needed around here. No matter whether you're 10 or 8 or 68, or 88, or whatever. We need you. So the question comes to us. Are you practicing these things? Are you practicing these things? Do not neglect them. So if Israel has all this going for it, what happens? What happens then? Let's take us spiritual decline. Look at three things that happened to them that caused this great reversal of spiritual fortunes, of spiritual success into spiritual decline. The first one is they did not obey God. Did you notice the refrain over and over and over again that started in verse 27? Each one of those paragraphs starts with the same statement. Manasseh. Ephraim, Zebulun, 
Asher, Naphtali, all of them did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Each one of them failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And what the author of Judges wants us to see is that they were disobeying God. It was God's direct command to the Israelites to drive out the inhabitants of the land. To either destroy them, everything that had a breath in it, and we can talk afterward about the, the difficulty of that, but that was God's command to them, or to drive them out of the land. But under no circumstances were they allowed the inhabitants of the land to stay there. And he tells us why. He says, because their gods, look down in uh, chapter 2, verse 3. He says, because their gods shall be a snare to you. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God gives them this command. He says, if you leave these inhabitants in the land, their gods, their practices will be a snare to you. They will cause you to go and worship their gods. And what we see here is this is the direct act of those disobedience on the part of God's people. When we make a conscious and constant decision to live in disobedience to God's word, it will lead to spiritual decline. If we live in direct disobedience, it will lead to spiritual decline. There is a moral law that is at work in God's world. Just like there's a spirit, I mean, a physical laws that are at work in this world, so there are also moral ones, right? Physically, we know that if I go climb to a tall building in the city of Atlanta and jump off thinking I'm going to fly, it's not going to happen, right? I'm going to pancake myself. Not even Muhammad Ali, who it is purported, or the story goes, was on an airplane, and the stewardess came and said, Mr. Ali, you've got to put your seatbelt on. And Muhammad Ali says, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And the stewardess said, Superman doesn't need a plane either. Even though he might think he's Superman, he still needs an airplane. He still needs a seatbelt. Because there are physical laws that work no matter what he thinks about them. And so there are moral laws. There are spiritual laws that are at work. That if you and I live in direct disobedience to God, there will be consequences. It will lead to spiritual decline. If you do not listen to God's word and its direction to you as a husband or a wife, and you disobey it, and you live in disobedience to it, you're not going to have a good marriage. As parents, if we live in direct contradiction to God's direction to us on how to raise our children, we have no way of believing that our children are going to flourish. They may, but it won't be because of us. You see, there are moral and spiritual laws. If we disobey God's word, it will lead to spiritual decline. Secondly, not only did they disobey God's word, but they compromised with the nations around them. They allowed them to live in their midst. They put them, it says, they, they didn't force them out, but many of them they put to forced labor 
but the plain fact is they allowed them to live among them. So, for instance, look at verse 29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, and so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. And what God had warned them about again and again is if you let these inhabitants live in the land, what will end up happening is you will compromise. You will begin to absorb their lifestyle. You will begin to live like they live. And you see it here in the book of Judges. You see it in the life of Gideon, where he is told to go and knock down the altar of Baal. There's an altar to an to another God in the midst of God's people. You see it in the life of Samson, where he goes and intermarries with the people around them in direct contradiction to God's word. They compromise again and again and again, and it leads to the last thing, spiritual defeat. Verse 34. It's different. Did you notice that? It's different. Rather than saying Dan did not drive out the Amorites, it says the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. In other words, the, the tribe of Dan tried to push the Amorites out, and the Amorites ended up pushing the Danites back out of their territory. So now there is a part of the promised land that doesn't even have the people of God in it. It leads to spiritual defeat. If we disobey over and over and constantly and consistently and deliberately, it will lead to spiritual defeat, compromise and defeat. This principle we see in the book of James, where we see how sin works in us. Where James talks about how sin... How our desires entice us and lead us away. And then when we give in to sin, sin when it is fully grown, he says the desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Now here's the amazing thing about the book of Judges. Though God's people do this, though they deliberately disobey though they compromise, though they're defeated again and again and again, when they cry out to God, God comes to them. This is our God. You may think, you, you may be, you may think, be thinking, I see this in my own life where I have disobeyed God and I have compromised with the world and it has led to spiritual defeat in my life and you're sitting there, well, what do I do? You do what the Israelites do over and over and over again in the book of Judges, they cry out to God. And God comes. Look at how He comes here. He comes even before they cry out in, cha- in, the, in this beginning of the book. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up, and he said, I brought, He comes to them and He confronts them with their sin, and He does it to draw them to repentance. And look at how He does it. He does three things. He remem- reminds them of the covenant, shows them their sin, and shows them the consequences. First, he reminds them of the covenant. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Remember, remember that I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. 
God reminds them of the gospel. Right? This is the gospel in the Old Testament that God had rescued them out of slavery and bondage. And then he shows them their sin. He says, I told you not to make covenants with the inhabitants of the land. But you have not obeyed my voice. God pulls the curtain back on their sin. And then he shows them the consequences of it. He says, verse 3, So I say to you, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And God uses that to draw them to repentance. Look at how they respond. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They cried. They wept. And they called the name of that place Bakim. Bakim means weeper. And then they went back and sacrificed to God. So I ask you, how about you? Are you in spiritual up? Are you practicing the things that are of spiritual success? Looking to God for guidance. Practicing the unity of the body of Christ. Looking at His promises. Or decline. Where are you? God is calling you to follow Him. He's calling you to repentance. If you're in decline. Come to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, O God, that You show us both how to walk with You and You show us how we fail to walk with You. And we ask, O God, that You would be at work in us, drawing us to repentance. And then also by Your Spirit at work in us to practice those things that You give us for spiritual success. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.